Christ Forming the Church is Dr. Joel Hunter's series, and he continues with his tenth message, Fear Came. From the New American Standard, Dr. Hunter's text is taken from Acts chapter 2, verse 43, and it reads as follows. And everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. We have been talking about how imminent and how integral Christ was in building the first church and drawing out the truth that he is just as imminent and just as integral in building the church today. And as those first Christians realized his nearness, there was a few reactions And those reactions we'll be preaching about in the coming weeks. But first, this question. What was their initial reaction? No, even better, what is your initial reaction to the discovery that the authority for your life is much closer to you than you had supposed? Thank you for letting me in. I didn't think there were any decent strangers left. You shouldn't be out on the streets at this time. There's a curfew. I was helping a woman get bread for her family. Yes, I'm a captive, a freedom fighter, a believer. Are you afraid of me? Should I be? We are gathering strength, you know. We have an underground... We will overthrow this bloodthirsty government before they ruin our country forever. We have plans. We will put our president back in power. You don't even know if your president is still alive. Our president is still alive. He has to be. So, you're fighting for the oppressed. Why? This new government isn't so bad. They wouldn't harm you. You could probably do quite well for yourself. As long as you don't mind a few minor inconveniences like early curfews. And screaming and murder in the streets. Injustice and random violence. No. We will restore our government. And your invisible president. He's not invisible. You've seen him then. He is safe somewhere, hidden, where he cannot be murdered before we regain control. He is safe. He will take back the presidency and he will restore us. He's our only hope. He must be alive. Yes, we have him safe. Here in the country somewhere. And when I meet him, and I will, I will receive a medal for everything that I have done. When I meet him, I will look him in the eye and I will say, Mr. President, I have worked hard for you. You shouldn't have been hidden for quite so long, but... I am glad you're back in power. Would you question your president's strategy? Would you be so arrogant as to think that you know better? I know that the president is wiser than I am. I am just so frustrated with him. And I have a right to be mad because he's not more visible. When I see him, I'm also going to tell him that he's let us down by operating behind the scenes. And then I will say, thank you for your opinion. Mr. President. 
What is your first reaction to discovering that the authority of your life is much closer than you had supposed? That was the situation, by the way, with the first Christians, with the formation of the first church. They were all believers in God. They all knew that God had come in person. They all knew the power of the Holy Spirit. But listen to the very next verse in the chapter of Acts that describes the formation of the church. Listen to the first reaction. Verse 42, And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. Very next verse, And everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. Now, I like the King James better here, quite frankly. That says, and fear came upon every soul. The Greek here is phobos. We get the word phobia from it. Because there's something deeper than awe, and there's something deeper than reverence. Awe and reverence are words that we have used to kind of dress up what is a very basic fear. Now, let me ask you again. Why would the first reaction of these Christians be fear? And let me give you my answer. Because through the teaching of the Word, and through the fellowship with other Christians, and through the breaking of the bread, the sacrament of communion, and through the prayers, it began to dawn on them that God was not just a transcendent God. That the very God that they began to think of as being far away was right next to them. And they were looking Him in the face. They were seeing Him move in people's lives and it, it began to dawn on them that they had the wrong theology. You see, as most of us do as we go along in our faith, we begin to put God on hold. And we begin to believe that it is us who call Him down. And if we need God, it is up to us to initiate that relationship. But as you watch God move throughout the church, it begins to dawn on you that God is not absent at all. That those things you think are hidden are not hidden. Those things, you, those things you think you're on your own for, you're not on your own for. And the first reaction is fear. Now this is a strange message to an American audience because we have been taught that fear is a bad thing. Would the God of the universe use fear to initiate some new stage of spiritual growth? My answer is, he usually uses fear. Do you remember why you came to Christ? Most of you came to Christ not because you were so good and trying to get a little better. Most of you and I came to Christ because we were afraid, and rightly so. We knew our lives had never straightened out. We knew we were powerless to straighten out our own lives, and we were afraid what would happen to us if we didn't. Many of you came to Christ because you realized you were in jeopardy of hell. Can I say that again? 
You looked very realistically at the way the world is arranged and you understood that you were in jeopardy of hell. When my wife and I were first going together, I asked her how she came to Christ. I knew that she had belonged to a mainline denomination and that she probably had not heard the gospel very many times in that place. She said, well, you know, Hunter, I have a stack of Sunday school pins this long. She'd never missed Sunday school. Went to youth group all the time. She said, I think for 15 years we tried to answer one question, should you kiss on the first date? It's the only thing we ever did in youth group, discuss should you kiss on the first date. But she said, one year I went to camp, and they built a great fire, and they invited in a revival preacher. She said, I'd never heard anything like that in my whole life. He described hell as he stood in front of that fire. I think she was so scared that she couldn't move when the invitation came. Her legs wouldn't work. She said, I went to bed in the cabin. And I could still see the reflection of the flames on the wall. I was so afraid that I would burn in hell that I gave my life to Christ that night. Now let me ask you, was that an invalid conversion? Not at all. No. She was rightfully afraid of hell. She was facing the world as it really was. She was facing the whole picture. Now, does that is that where you stay in that kind of fear? For many years, she didn't know much other than the fear of God. No, that's not where you stay. But that is where people usually start. And they not only start there, they start on new stages of their lives by fear. You see, fear is some propensity that God has given everybody. It's not just for Christians. Take every religion in the world and you will see an element of fear. Why? Because God has put it in there. He knows that is a chief motivator of ours. Some of you know I'm forming a a friendship. I hope a very close friendship with the teacher of Islam of Central Florida, the Imam. And as I met with him this week, I already began to love this man. I just, I love him. He's such a great, great man. And we are studying the Koran together. The Koran is their Bible. And I know that someday we'll study our Bible together. But for right now, I'm, I'm reading through the Koran. And the first surah or chapter is a prayer that, that Muslims say repeatedly. But the second surah begins to outline the rest of the book. And and first in the chapter is this verse. This book will give instruction without doubt to all who fear Allah. It's universal. I find it interesting, by the way, that in the English translation of that in the footnote section of the Quran, the reference for that for that particular scripture is Proverbs one seven. It's true. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fear is the beginning. It is God's beginning, and therefore we should never lose sight of how God uses fear 
to give us new beginnings. And we should never fail to fear God with part of our lives. You know why? Because as Reggie said, it's a paradox. As we learn to fear Him, we will also learn to trust in Him. Listen to the 8th chapter of Isaiah. God is talking to Isaiah. And he is noticing that Isaiah is beginning to become, in his walk, like other men. You you know, men, as they go along in the faith, begin to build up an immunity or a desensitization for those things that they fear. And, And it works like that for God. As you progress in your faith, if you started out with fear, your natural human tendency is to then be desensitized to that which you originally feared. This happens, by the way, all the time in psychology. This is what they do. They, they take you through a program of desensitization for those phobias that you have. They give you a little bit at a time, and you build up kind of an immunity until you're not afraid anymore. Unfortunately, that's exactly what happens in our Christian walk. We get a little bit at a time until we built up an immunity for that holy, uncompromised, justice righteous God. And we don't fear Him as we originally did, and we start to fear people. God sees that tendency also in Isaiah. And look at what He says to Isaiah. For thus the Lord spoke to me. It begins in verse 11. You are... You are... Oh, I'm sorry. Spoke to me with mighty power and instructed me not to walk in the ways of this people. Don't, in other words, don't be like all the other people saying, you are not to say it is a conspiracy. You know what we usually do? We we cook up conspiracies so that we're afraid of what men will do. We just heard in Psalm Psalm, uh, 2, it doesn't matter what conspiracies people have. God sits in the heavens and laughs. It has no effect on God. But we get all revved up in our fear with conspiracies. It says this, you are not to say it is a conspiracy in regard to all this people call a conspiracy. And you are not to fear what they fear or be in dread of it. Listen to this. It is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy. And he shall be your fear. And he shall be your dread. Now listen to this next verse. It seems like such a strange verse. It's juxtaposed to the fear. Listen to what it says. It says, then he shall become a sanctuary. You see how that works? God speaks both with fear and assurance, both with the fear of the Lord's and the fear nots. Then, the Bible says, he shall become a sanctuary. Is fear, is, is fear something we grow out of and finally come to the full assurance, resting in Christ, not being afraid of God at all? Not on your life. You had better not. Because if you do that, you have mistaken the character of God. Are we who still continue to be tempted? Are we who continue to have trouble with sin in our lives to disregard the awesome, uncompromised holiness of God? Are we to take Him for granted as if He were some Santa Claus figure who who pinches our cheeks and tell us how cute we are simply because we now have become His children? Are we not to fear that which can, can destroy us? No, our God is an awesome God. Our God is an awesome God. And we cannot, 
cannot walk through this life realistically without some fear of God. Some time ago, I read the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis. I'm going, to, I'm going to read just a few passages through you, sprinkled throughout this message. Because C.S. Lewis writes of this faraway land uh, with, with uh, animals that talk and, and boys and girls who discover this, this land. And really, it's an allegory for Christendom. And it has in it the figures of Christendom. And, and Aslan is the figure of Christ. And somebody in the first book, The Lion, Witch, and Wardrobe, uh, talks about Aslan, and the kids are trying to figure out who Aslan is. Listen to what it says. Who is Aslan? asked Susan. Aslan? said Mr. Beaver. Why, don't you know? He's the king. It is he, not you, that will save Mr. Tumas. Is, is he a man? asked Lucy. Aslan a man? said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he's the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion. The lion. The great lion. Oh, said Susan. I, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Well, that you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king. God is not safe. But he's good. He's the king. And as we continue in our fellowship, in our walk with God, there is the assurance of salvation, but there is also the fear that comes to us when we need to recognize that we need another step of depth. There's the fear that will come to us as we recognize the closeness of God, the eminence, the fact that He's right with us. It happened to Jacob. Jacob of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob fame. The Jacob, the leader of our mother religion, Judaism. He was traveling to Beersheba, Genesis chapter 28. And he laid down and he took a nap. Fell asleep. And the Bible says that he had a dream. And in this dream, this is what happens. The Lord stood above this ladder that he had, that he, that he dreamed about. And there were angels uh, uh, ascending to heaven and descending on this ladder. And the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give it to you and to your descendants. Now I want you to notice two things. First of all, I want you to notice that this is a repeat of a promise. God is staying consistent from the grandfather to the father to the grandson. I also want you to know this is good news. This is a good thing. It's a wonderful thing. Read on with me. And your descendants shall also be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and in you and in your descendants shall all of the families of the earth be blessed. Good news. 
Right? And behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised to you. Now, isn't that the most wonderful promise? Isn't that the most wonderful assurance? But look at what happens in Jacob's life. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid. And he said, How awesome is this place. I like King James again better here. It says, How dreadful is this place. He was afraid. Why? Because there is no other reaction when you're confronted with the nearness of the Holy God. And those of us who just walk through life bumping into things don't realize how near God is. And when you realize it, you're afraid. That's the realism of the situation. Or it's not like the fear that you had as an unbeliever. You know, in Romans 8, it says this. It says, For you have not received the spirit of slavery leading to the fear again, to a fear. And and literally, it's that the fear which you once have. You don't have to be afraid of hell if you're a believer. But that doesn't mean you're unafraid. No, there's a different kind of fear. The fear of a judge who judges all of our works and all of our thoughts. The fear of a judge that even though we have bypassed Judgment for our sins, we have not bypassed judgment for our lives. The fear of the impartial judge that's mentioned in 1 Peter 1.17 when it says, And if you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each man's work. Now there's some fearful words. Who impartially judges according to each man's work. Conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay here on earth. Why? Well, because of the character of God. God is not one that you should take lightly. Our God is a consuming fire. Our God hates sin. And He will not interrupt the consequences of our sin. He will not interrupt it for us. He will not interrupt it for the, the second and third and fourth generations, the Bible says, that sin and the effects of that sin visits even them. And we should be sobered by that. We should be afraid of that. Those things we think we're getting away with, we're not getting away with. We're accumulating consequences. Do you understand? We're accumulating consequences. God is not someone to be taken lightly. God is not someone who does not consume Let me give you another passage. This one from the silver chair. It's about a little girl named Jill who is in the woods and and she's terribly thirsty and she comes out by a stream. This clean, babbling brook and she's running ahead to get a drink when she spots this huge lion, Aslan, laying by the stream on her side of the stream. And she freezes And the lion looks at her. Are you not thirsty? said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I? Could I? Would you mind going away while I do? 
said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I come? I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat girls, she said. (laughs) Now listen to the response. Because the discrepancy between this response and your response might tell you something about your image of God. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I daren't come and drink then, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream. God is the only way to what we need and what we, what we want. What he has put it in our heart to desire. And even for believers, we must be sobered by the fact that we must operate with much fear and trepidation in this world, not for men, but for God. Because God sees our lives. We have built institutions that have very well hidden our lives from each other and even from ourselves. After a while, we begin to believe what we ourselves want to hear and what we tell ourselves. And the institutions that we have built do not serve us very well. I had coffee this week for about an hour with uh, Andrew Crenshaw. He's a, he's a candidate for governor. And we got together just with a, a mutual friend of ours and we were talking. By the way, I'm so heartened that we have so many Christian brothers that are running for governor this year. And, 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 but, and what I'm telling you is not an endorsement here. It's just Crenshaw is just a great guy. And, and I, we were talking not for the purposes of him getting my vote, because right now what will decide this race is whoever has the most effective television commercials. And as we talked, that was exactly his frustration. He said, you know, this system of politics that we have, it used to be for the revealing of a person's character. You, sh- you, you used to be able to, through the system, ask them anything about their lives and come to know their lives and be able to look inside their lives, which is so valuable for an elected official. But now, it's whoever can make the slickest commercials and whoever has the best public image. The system does just the opposite of what it was supposed to do. I want to tell you I have the same frustration for the church. The church was a place where people came together and they, and they were honest with one another and they, they said, I have a need, I have a sin, I, I need forgiveness. It was built for that. 
And as we have come along in the development of the church, we have built structures around that. We have small groups that can squeeze our cheeks for us and tell us we're okay. And in some ways we do need the nurturance and support of friends, but nurturing and support has become synonymous with giving compliments. And we have these... This huge deal where we can walk in and we can worship God. And I love this time. I love this time. And I think God does business during this time. But let's not dare think that there are very many people in here who are going to come up to us and tell us what we need to hear or ask questions we need to be asked. One of the reasons I'm so stoked about these ministry centers, these groups of one to 300 people, is because that's the kind of group that I think will develop. We need to get back to how are you serving Christ? What are you doing? You know, Where's your life? Where's the challenge? And, and even if you aren't Novito and you don't show up here Tuesday at 7, I don't know how that got left out of the bulletin. Boy, this is a historic deal. But even if you're not a resident of Novito and not part of this first ministry center effort, I want you to look forward to something like that. Because we need the accountability of a large enough group of people who will care about our characters, about how we develop, because that's the gift we give to God. Now, I'm going to quit in just a minute, but I I want to tell you something, two things very plainly. Listen to my words as I say it. It's what God brought you here for this morning. Our God is present in your life. What you think... You're getting away with, you're not getting away with. What you think is not having an effect on your life is having an effect on your life. What you think you're hiding from people, you're not hiding from God. Even if you've talked yourself into the place where you don't think it really matters, it does matter. And it will destroy your life. If you don't come to God in fear and repent. I don't know how many of you remember Alfred Hitchcock. Alfred Hitchcock, when he wrote a drama, wrote suspense in quite a different way than we see these days. These days you have mysteries and and you don't know how everything's going to add up until you come to the end and you summarize all the clues and you make some sort of discovery that you didn't know in the first place. But when Alfred Hitchcock built suspense... He built it by giving you the answer up front. He would place a time bomb under a chair. At the very beginning of the plot, and the rest of the plot developed along the lines of, are they going to discover that time bomb in time? That was the suspense. I want to tell you, we're not too far off that. There are time bombs in your lives. And what God's asking you this morning is are you going to discover them before they harm you and harm those you love? I know some of you are saying, you know, Hunter, I hear all this, and, and years ago I was idealistic enough to really want to be holy for God. I, was, I, I really was. I, I wanted my life to be perfect and clean for Him. But, you know, I've sinned so much, I don't even have the hunger anymore. There's this dead part of my life. I, I, I want to be a nice person. I don't want to harm anybody. But this... This thing of really facing my sin is just too much pain. It's too much hassle. There's just a dead part in my life. You know what? God can bring it alive again. 
and he wants to. The blood of Christ can touch that dead part of your life and bring the yearning to be clean and holy. Bring the yearning to be potent spiritually back to you if you've lost it. Let me read one more thing and then I'm going to ask Lloyd to come out and sing a song that I think will open up the door for the Holy Spirit. This is at the end of that book that I just read and the scene is a funeral service with King Caspian who has been a tireless fighter for good and they have had a final battle kind of an Armageddon so to speak and and King Caspian has been slain and he lays in a stream, a shallow stream and the, and the water just floods over his dead body. And all of the forces of good look at him and there's this doleful funeral dirge that's coming from somewhere they can't tell where. And then Aslan comes upon the scene. And he places himself above that dead man's body. And he looks at a little boy whose name is Eustace. And he says to him, Son of Adam, go into that thicket and pluck the thorn that you will find there and bring it to me. And Eustace obeyed. And the thorn was a foot long and sharp as a rapier. Drive it into my paw. Son of Adam, said Aslan, holding up his right forepaw and spreading out the great pads toward Eustace. Must I? said Eustace. Yes, said Aslan. Then Eustace set his teeth and drove the thorn into the lion's pad. And there came out a great drop of blood, redder than all the redness you have ever seen or imagined. And it splashed into the stream over the dead body of the king. And at the same moment, the doleful music stopped. And the dead king began to change. And his eyes opened, and his lips both laughed, and suddenly he leaped up and stood before them. I want to tell you that parts of your life right now you think are dead, God can bring alive. You think the love for your spouse is dead, God can bring it alive. You think the love for holiness is dead? God can bring it alive. You think the yearning to be free of sin is dead? God can bring it alive. The great part of all of this as we repent is that Jesus Christ has already paid for our sins. The punishment is gone. The consequences remain. And the consequences will continue to accumulate for as long as we sin. But the punishment is gone. There's nothing we need to do to repay it. We just need to turn around and leave it. Listen as I pray to a voice of God that will call you this morning to repent. Please pray with me. Holy Spirit, I ask you to come right now and convict us of sin. Very simply, to, to tell us what we need to repent of, what there is in our lives that we need to stop or what there is we need to start, the thoughts we need to pitch out of our heads and the, 
the kind of people we need to be. Oh, Holy Spirit, come and help us repent. Help us listen to your voice. In Jesus' name.